Hey awesome people, a huge welcome to the 10th episode of the second season of Lantern. We're a podcast about young people trying to change the world and trying to understand what that actually means. This fortnight, we're sitting down with Jane Coe, who is the founder and CEO of Bring Me Home, an online marketplace connecting people to food retailers to help reduce food wastage. They do this for an app that allows people to buy discounted food from restaurants and cafes that are close to closing time and that the food would otherwise be thrown out. Now, we did record this episode a while back now, but the apps have been launched at the moment and are available to download on Google Play or the Apple App Store. We have links in the show notes. Now, we highly recommend you try out the app and we hope you enjoy the insightful chat we had with Jane around food wastage in Australia. My name is Jane Coe and I'm the founder and CEO of a social startup called Bring Me Home and very, very passionate about cutting food waste because that's a huge problem and that's why I started this startup. And there's just one thing I want to start on before we move on to like sort of your organisation and sort of your university path. What was sort of your thought process behind that? Like, did you go through that wanting to maybe start your own social enterprise or was it more sort of to like see what your options were? Well, ever since high school, I kind of just know that I have to become an entrepreneur at some point because my whole family, they run their own businesses and I just, you know, look look up to them. And the reason why I did an overseas degree, so I'm not from Australia, I'm from a place called Macau. And the reason why I decided to study overseas is because I need to broaden my perspectives and I need to get different experiences overseas. And I decided to do a Bachelor of Commerce, majored in marketing finance, because I thought finance is, is always very important, even in the personal level. And marketing is just something that I'm always interested. It's the most creative part about the business. And I love that part. And then thought process after I graduated is that I really, really enjoy marketing. I want to learn more. I want to be a subject um, expertise on it. So I decided to do a master of commerce at Melbourne Business School and specialized in marketing. But I didn't really think that I would actually enter that whole social impact sector until I did this subject with Professor Ben Neville. It's called social entrepreneurship. And I remember the first assessment that we had to do is to find a global issue that you care about or you, you're passionate about and write a paper on it. And so I, I just know that I need to start with food waste because that's something that, you know, I grew up with, you know, like just really cautious about my food waste. And the whole thing just kind of started, the wave just started from there. <laughs> yeah. Beyond that sort of class, were there many other opportunities within like the degree to explore social entrepreneurship or was it more sort of isolated to that one? I think it's a bit isolated to that one. It's yeah. like the only subject, well, now they have a lot more subject to something to do with social impact, impact space, but I don't think students actually have a lot of awareness in terms of you know, the approach they can take to get exposure to that. But back back in my days, <laughs> still not that old, but um, they have this subject which is only targeted at social entrepreneurs or people that want to start a business or work in the NGO sector or social enterprises. So the class is quite large or was it quite a small school? Pretty small. Uh, I think less, less than 20 students. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's pretty small. Or 25 maybe? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah pretty tiny. Yeah. And I don't... I honestly don't know how many people decided to pursue a, a career path with that. Mm. Like there are so many great ideas. I remember there was this idea like someone just came up using crickets and like powderize it because apparently it's a packed with protein. Oh, so it's cool. like you can consume crickets, but 
it's a bit of a crazy thing, but if you think about it, it's a, a lot more sustainable than, you know, eating meat. And, you know, there's a whole other impact data associated with it. And I thought that was a cool idea, but, you know, not a lot of people actually pursue what they came up with. So you're a member of the Young Social Pioneer Program. Mm. Um, I just wanted to ask, how did you hear about that program and like, what was your involvement? How did I hear about it? I think I just came across it online, like on a Facebook ad or something. And then I just decided to apply for it. And back then I was working with another organization from Europe. And so I actually applied for the European company because I thought if we can get funding, then that would be good for that company. But things didn't quite work out well. And when I got in, I decided to just start my own social enterprise. And the program manager was pretty happy about it. So they gave me a chance, they gave me a shot. So the program is really, really good for all kinds of social entrepreneur, even in the NGO, not-for-profit or even just for-profit social enterprises, because they take in people from different stages of the startup. There are people that went in with, with a mission or with a problem they want to solve, but don't have an idea to begin with they still can get in. There's also people that have an idea, but just need to refine, testify, validate. Those people can get in as well. There are people that already have launched their product and just need to, you know, that umph to really accelerate. Then they can, you know, there are people that also got accepted to the program. So how it works is a three month program with a couple days of intensive within each month. The first month has three days intensive. The second month has a five day intensive. And the third month has two days, which includes the pitch practice day and the official pitch day. So that's kind of how the program works. What do you think was the most important thing that you learned or the thing that you sort of took away yeah. from that that sort of enabled you to yeah. start? I think just being able to have that strong self-discipline and have a plan. Have a plan, stick to it, but also be flexible to changes. So be agile to whatever environment you're exposed to. Because when I started, I had no local. I only had the name Bring Me Home. That was it. I didn't have a website, no social media whatsoever. But I think just being very proactive in terms of wanting to make the idea into a reality and always remind yourself that this is not going to be real unless you take actions to it. Every intensive after that, I would do something to my social enterprise, like set up a social media account, start getting followers. And then I created my own website, which is up and running. And like, it was so new, it was so real. And then started talking to customers to get traction. So it's like every month I see a bit of progress. And I think that's the most important part of joining a program. The program managers can always push you to achieve something, but not unless you actually take action. So having that self-discipline is so important, I think. A little bit before, you did mention that sort of European organisation. I did a bit of research and that was too good to go. Is that yes, correct? Yes. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more, just briefly, like how you sort of found them and reached out and yeah. ended up working for them? Because I think it's quite an interesting story. Yeah. So um, it goes back to the subject that I took at Melbourne Business School, the social entrepreneurship. So when I was researching, you know, the problem of food waste, I kind of looked at it in the global scale. And then I looked at Australia, like how much food is wasted, that the problem, it is huge. Afterwards, I looked at the solution and I looked at, you know, what other countries that are doing really well at cutting food waste. And a lot of the countries are actually based in Europe. And so I looked at the continent itself and looked at what solutions they have in Europe to really cut food waste. And then I came across Too Good To Go. That was one of the solution, a B2C platform where people can buy excess food at a discount from cafes and restaurants. 
I thought it was a brilliant idea. So because now there's a lot of startups and companies that are very successful and it's a marketplace. You know, I was very interested in marketplace and I kind of, you know, looked into it and I thought, wow, this is amazing. Like they're only in business for like three years, but they've expanded to seven or eight countries already. Um, and so I decided to stalk the CEO on LinkedIn, like anyone would. <laughs> and I actually, um, you know, I had the balls to shoot him a message and I was like, hey, I'm Jane. I came across your company, really liked what you guys are doing. Have any, has anyone approached you guys and say you should expand to Australia? Because I think there is a market here. And I honestly didn't expect him to reply because CEOs don't really look at messages from strangers, but he did. So like a week later, he um, messaged me back. He was like, hi, we're actually looking into Australia. I'm glad you approached us. His two other contacts, they're all co-founders. You should contact them and talk about it because they're the ones doing it. I was like, okay, great. And so I emailed the uh, two co-founders, Adam and Lars, and we very quickly, we scheduled a Skype meeting. Skype meeting was kind of like a job interview and I was very excited because I did all the research for the class so I could obviously transfer those research back and you know after the first Skype meeting I pretty much just landed myself a job um, as a sales and marketing manager and I was like whoa okay <laughs> that's exciting and uh, yeah so I've been working with them remotely um, end of starting from the end of 2016 and then we tried to launch the app in Australia in early 2017, but the investors back in Denmark, so the, the, the headquarters based in Denmark, the investors back there, they wanted to focus more resources back in Europe. And so they decided like the most you know reasonable, rational decision is to really just focus in Europe for now. So they pulled back from the expansion. It was a bit of an upset story for me because I felt like it was my first startup baby because I initiated the market expansion. But things didn't work out, but then things worked really well with, you know, what I decided to do afterwards. I decided to pick it up from the ground, kind of create it like a phoenix from the ash um, scenario and just launch my own brand and still do something similar. Did you immediately think you'd sort of, as you said, you know, bring it from the ashes, so to speak, and start up a new one? Or did you kind of think, oh, what am I going to do now? Like, was it clear in your mind that you'd start your own thing? Like after it ended, I just, I was just so torn because, you know, studying in a Melbourne business school space is a very stressful environment, to be honest. All your friends are talking about graduate programs or KPMG, the big four, big five banks or whatever. And I'm like, I'm not sure if that's what I want. I just know that I'm not a corporate kind of girl. I've done internships before. I never really enjoyed them. And so after I graduated, I was like, well, I need to find my job now because, you know, that was like one month before I graduate, I lost my career with Too Good To Go. And I was like, well, all the program applications have already ended. I need to find a way. I actually try to submit like at least 80 applications, job applications, and I've got a lot of interviews, but never really made to the final stage. Majority of the reason why was because of my visa status. Just because I'm not a citizen or permanent resident, I can't really get through the final stage. And that's understandable, right? Like, I completely understand the recruiter's point of view, but it's just such a shame. But that's, I also want to thank them for rejecting me because otherwise I wouldn't be doing this now. And I just knew that, you know, like I was still very attached to the whole concept of a marketplace. And I know for sure it's going to work in Australia. I've seen real progress made with Too Good To Go. And I just kind of took a month gap and just not do anything and think about life. 
you know, realizing things. <laughs> and I watched a lot of TV um, episodes, especially on Shark Tank, because I feel like I need to pick up the momentum, pick up the motivation. And I just watched a lot of funny and terrible product videos that actually can sell. I, that's how I finally realized that, well, if they can sell crappy products, I'm pretty sure I can sell this good product or service. <laughs> it was actually after one episode, I was like, okay, that's it. I'm done. I'm going to go online and register an ABN right now. That's, that's how it all, <laughs> like, that. that's how it all I picked up, you know? And yeah, so it was, you know, it took me a while to kind of have that grief moment with Too Good To Go, mm. but also pick it up again. I think that's real resilience that I kind of developed over my career. And just a bit about Bring Me Home. So sort of how does the model and app work now, like from what you've created and what you've sort of learnt from Too Good To Go? The concept is still very similar. So it's a marketplace where people can buy discounted surplus food from cafes and restaurants which would otherwise be wasted. And these food are usually like actually always uh, in a very good quality. It's just the fact that food retailers have to comply to food and safety regulation and they have to throw out whatever they don't sell. So we try to speed up the whole sale process by you know, creating a very accessible app. And something different is that the way we approach the community is different. Uh, we're backing, you know, two of the largest fruit rescue organizations in Australia, Oz Harvest and Second Bite. So we've we've partnered with them, we're backing them. And we're also trying to engage as many, you know, local charities to, to be involved as possible, which is kind of different from, from the way they approach things. And we also changed up the revenue model a bit. So I did a bit of research and kind of investigated if, you know, the previous revenue model works best for the Australian market or not. Found Finds out that it's, it's actually not the best and so I kind of did a, a bit of change in there you know branding is very different now social media content the way we you know communicate is so different so pretty much anything that's still similar is just the model and the concept but a lot of the things have changed touching on that revenue model it's something we talked about quite a fair bit on the show like how mm. do we make these things sustainable yeah. so what was sort of the original model that too good to go used yeah. and like how did your new sort of model, if you're able to share yeah. that, of course. How we make money in general is that when a customer makes a purchase on the app, we take a commission fee mm -hmm. and then the rest gets transferred to the food retailer and the app platform is free to access and use. So Too Good To Go, they charge a flat fee of $1.20 for every meal that was purchased. Mm -hmm. You know, spoke to a lot of food retailers and I realized that actually does not incentivize them to cut their price down mm -hmm. because if they want to sell at $3, they can't because they're only earning like a dollar and 80 cents back so I decided to switch the model to a commission model I think it's more fair for everyone that you know has different pricing mm. and that really encouraged them to sell at a lower price so that's how we make money we take you know a commission fee do you say that you sort of have a target audience in mind or do you think it's sort of open to everyone who might like stumble upon the app Honestly speaking, it's pretty much open to anyone that stumble upon the app. But, you know, to, to, when we talk about startups, we're always thinking about target audience, primary target market, starting lean, like all these buzzwords. <laughs> and for us, we wanted to kind of start off with the lowest hanging fruit, like the easiest reach target. In terms of the end consumers, like the app users that buy and consume the food, we're targeting prim primarily uni students because they're like the best people that we can work with and they find our service very valuable, getting discounted food and making an impact. They're very eco and cost conscious usually. And for the fruit retailers, we're kind of targeting cafes and bakeries and restaurants that have pre-made meals to begin with. So for example, sushi stores, bakeries are usually 
the baker's ones actually yeah they bake everything fresh and whatever they don't sell at the end of the day they won't keep it for the next day they throw it away mm. so yeah those are like the main targets for now in terms of sort of like partnering with these organizations how's that sort of process been because you mentioned you were second bite and i was harvest yeah like how did you go about sort of pursuing those partnerships and what sort of value props do you offer yeah. to them and vice versa yeah honestly it wasn't really hard to approach these organizations i think a lot of people become a bit standoffish like thinking that oh they're like huge mm. don't know where to start i pretty much just looked at the website, found the contact email and just shot them an email. That was it. It was so easy. But, you know, with the content, I think there's a skill in writing emails. Can't be too short, can't be too long. It has to be like, a, there's a bliss point to everything. So with that, it's like, I need to communicate all the benefits for them in the first time, first email, and get them to be interested and ask me more information instead of me just blurping everything out at the first start. And, you know, the benefits for them, it's kind of like, we can help them scale their impact. So for us Harvest, every dollar donated to them, they can redistribute two meals for free to someone in need or the homeless. For Second Bite, every one dollar donated, they can redistribute four to five meals for free. So that's the metrics they've given us, the impact they can make with one dollar. And we really like that. We wanted to kind of, you know, um, get our app users to be proactive in also donating money to them so that, you know, actually our other goal is to end food insecurity as well but the main one is to end food waste. So that's kind of like our other pathway to, to tackle the other issue. Okay, and do they currently, like in your model, I guess, are they receiving like a certain percentage of sales or is it more sort of that encouragement from users to donate to them as well? They're not receiving anything from sales. So we're not adopting that, you know, every profit we make, we donate x amount we, we can't do that at the moment mm. just because of the the way the business works and the profit margin we're making mm. but we are definitely encouraging users to make a donation every time they purchase a meal it's very handy like on the app when a user is about to check out they can actually just click a button and just donate you know oh, cool. what like 10 cent to like a dollar and 90 cent that range mm. so it's it's very small amount and you know we believe that it will accumulate and that will make a huge impact eventually. Just on another note, Jane, have you received any like criticism um, from people or, you know, how would you sort of address criticism? I have actually, and I don't look at them as criticism. I look at it as feedback, constructive feedback. I haven't really came across anyone that's super rude, so that's great. Mm. I'm actually looking forward to that day to see how I would react. Um, <laughs> but a lot of them are just constructive feedback and like, People that, you know, I seek help from, they will always ask me questions, challenge my thoughts and really make sure I know the nitty gritty of my business. That's great for me because that, as a founder, you need to know every single thing about your business. There can't be gaps. You have to fill in all the gaps eventually. Like I wouldn't take criticism personally, number one. I always take it as the business level and I always think that the other person is trying to make my business better. So that's how I view that. Yeah. And how big is your team at the moment? I'm quite curious, like, is it just for you leading it at the moment? Oh, we have a lot of people on the team. <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's exciting, but also a bit scary to handle. We've actually got 17 people. Oh, wow, it's massive. It's massive, yeah. And a lot of them are student volunteers. And the reason why I decided to take on a, a huge team to begin with is that number one, they're all volunteers, so the, the hours that they work is very limited, mm -hmm. so we need more manpower. And you know, human resources is a big thing for us right now. We need, we need a lot of human resources. We're still recruiting, can you believe it? <laughs> <laughs> and pretty much the only one that's working on it full time 
I'm really hoping to convert some of their volunteers into full-time or at least part-time employees because I do see a couple that has full potential to work with us and come onto the journey. But yeah, 17 people for now. And what are the main reasons these people sort of joining on the team? Like, is it that volunteer experience or do they love the idea or is it a combination? Yeah. Combination, actually. I think majority is the passion to begin with. Mm -hmm. And that is so important to, for all the companies because that's kind of like the pillars for the team, I think. Without passion, you know, you can see people leave very fast, but everyone that joined pretty much just stayed on for a long time. And the second one would be experience. Cause we, we like, for me, it's not just they work for us. I always provide feedback. I always want to have one-on-one -on -one catch ups with them and see like one thing that I do in the interviews is to ask, what are your three main weaknesses? And the reason why I ask is not to like suss it out. It's more like, okay, you need help in these areas. How can I help you as a founder, as a CEO and as an organization? So I always try to help them in terms of personal development. And I think a lot of the people love that. And that's why they, they decide to stay for a long time. <laughs> yeah, I just had sort of one more because I think this has been a problem that we've sort of faced ourselves in like mm. recruiting and trying to find right fits for the team. Mm. Do you have any sort of advice on say when you interview someone, working out whether their passion's genuine or not or whether yeah. they're a good fit for the team? Because I know it's not perfect, but yeah. I didn't know if you had any experience around it. Yeah, I think asking those very straightforward questions and be like, why do you want to work for us? Why do you want to jo join the team? Then you can kind of get a lot of answers from that. If people are like, oh, well, I like the experience, blah, 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 without mentioning anything about food waste. For us, usually that's a reflect um, because we're always looking for people with the strong passion. That's to begin with. And then, you know, obviously experience comes along. So that's a given. But just ask that very straightforward question. Why do you want to join us? Why, why us? You know, why Project Lantern? Why not other podcasts? And then the, another question is, if someone else were to offer you another job, let's say ABC Radio, like in your case, right? Mm -hmm. ABC Radios want to offer you a job. For what reasons will you actually go with them? That's kind of how you find out why they would leave and you can plan ahead to keep this personnel in your, in your network. That's two of, of the key questions that I usually ask them. Another thing that I wanted to sort of touch on, like how receptive have restaurants and things been to this idea? Like yeah, we've got a bit of both, actually. There are actually quite a few that, you know, once we pitch it, they're like, oh my God, yes. Oh, perfect. We need the service or like we need, we need to, to solve this problem. I'm glad you approached us. And then there are other ones like, well, we don't have a lot of leftovers and this seems like a lot of work, so we'll think about it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, for us, it's like one meal can feed one person. So that's a huge impact you know, mm. just one meal. So we try to convince them, even though if they're just like, oh, we only have two meals left every day, that like, that's a lot. That's like 60 meals per month. So we always, you know, try to get them involved and, you know, let them think about it. And then we come back again. Do you find there are some restaurants that are willing to give more than others or like certain types of restaurants? Yeah, there are actually, they're, like there are really nice restaurant owners that would rather like give someone, you know, for the price of $5, give them like two or three meals at the same time, just so they don't have to throw away the food and actually give it to someone. There are also some that just like very strict on, yep, this is just the portion we're gonna give out for $4 and that's okay. So we're kind of dealing with different personalities and, and that's very interesting for us, yeah. And I I think we should probably talk about because I know we dance around the issue mm -hmm. of like food waste more broadly but I'm curious to sort of get an understanding of what the situation is like in Australia. It's actually a very very crazy issue. So food waste and food insecurity they're both kind of issues that can be tied together. There's a research that says more Australians have access to phone than food. 
it's insane. I was like, what? Are you serious? Phone is even more expensive. But I guess people just, you know, can't get away with those issues. One in six Australians actually would experience food insecurity at some point. And, you know, food insecurity could doesn't mean just you can't get nutrition food. It's more like sometimes, for, for example, a student wants to save money to pay off the loan or mortgage. They might actually skip a couple meals just to do that. That's also food insecurity. And, you know, the, the food waste actually costs the Australian economy $20 billion every year. And just the commercial sector, they throw, like, the commercial sector would usually throw away around 4 million tonnes of perfect edible food to waste just because number one it's either near expiry or not enough demand and like not being allocated properly and it's it's a shame because four million tons that's so many meals that can feed so many people you know that one in six australian actually just yesterday i had a conversation with a impact investor she was talking about how you know there's this company called yumi so yumi is doing something similar but it's a b2p B platform. They're connecting suppliers with surplus food to restaurant and, and other retailers that need the, the raw ingredients to cook. They found like 20 tons of tuna just about to, to get dumped to the landfill and they're desperately finding retailers to take up those tuna and cook with them. Mm. And that's just on the other side of the spectrum. It's the supply side. Mm. We're trying to solve the other side, which is, you know, retail side. And as you can see, there's so just so much problem and a lot of organizations try, try to jump in and, and, you know, address the issue. There are so many food rescue organizations and charities try to pick up whatever that's left and redistribute. But guess what? They're only addressing 1% of the issue, just 1%. That's very on the service. There's still 99% of the problem yet to be solved. So it's a huge problem that people tend to forget. People tend to overlook and think, oh, it's kind of maybe solved at some point, but it's not. It's always an issue. Yeah. And why do you think there's that perception that people kind of like forget about it when it's such like an important, vital thing, food security? Yeah. I think, well, okay, this is just my opinion, yeah. so might be wrong. There's this trend of focusing more on the social issue, the mental health side, you know, gender equality. Yeah, things like that. Like the social issues, I think people um, place more emphasis on it. And I think maybe it's to do with the quality of life in Australia. People can actually, you know, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's like food, it's like at the very bottom, that's a basic need. But once you kind of satisfy all the bottom layers, you move up to, you know, individual ones. Like you th think about self-esteem, you think about being respected and all that stuff. I think Australians are in a very good position to kind of care about the issues on the top because the bottom is kind of solved. Not a lot of people are in poverty compared to other developing countries. So people tend to, you know, focus more on the top level social issues. But the, the bottom level issues are still there. It's just like it's just very difficult to kind of remind people, hey, this is still an issue, gotta pay attention to it. <laughs> Do you think this is more of a problem in Australia, say, than like in places like Europe? Europe is very good at doing, you know, cutting food waste yeah. and, and implementing policies to really actively cut waste in general. I think France or Germany, I think it's France, they actually will penalise food retailer if they waste food or, you know, grocery stores, they, they has, has like a no waste or minimum waste policy. And I think we need that at some point. You know, that's one thing that I'm trying to do at some point is to kind of implement some sort of policy to really make sure everyone just try to minimise wastage. But Europe is really good with that. The government's really supportive. A lot of the policies have been implemented to, to kind of rescue food. 
I think it's a huge issue in the States and a huge issue in China. Australia, I'm not sure if it's, you know, one of the top five countries that produces the most waste. So when Australia is not, not that bad compared to other countries, yeah. but we're still pretty bad in terms yeah. of, you know, the tons of millions and yeah. yeah. Touching on that, that idea of policy, mm. do you think to like, I guess you can't really ultimately mm. solve an issue, but like to make that massive change, do you think it needs to come from policy or could yes. it be organisations like yourself that make up the difference? I think organisations can only solve a problem at only a certain percentage. Mm. Policies will make a huge difference because like what I did was to study systems, uh, system change as well with a couple of uh, professors and, and mentors in, in my network. And we looked at, you know, we looked at an issue and then what are other contributing factors that can solve it? One of the biggest one is actually policy, which is going to be implemented top down. So when the top says you have to do this, everyone has to do it. It's a compulsory thing. Whereas organizations are trying to convince people to do something. We're trying to change the behavior. It takes a longer time. It costs a lot more to do that. This reminds me of a thing. So in Europe, there is a banana bendiness. It's a policy where, you know, bananas have to be certain, it has to curve at a certain degree. Otherwise they have to be abandoned. Yeah. It's a really silly policy. I think they will abandon that soon, but I think Australia has that as well. I'm not sure. So. I need to check on that. <laughs> but um, but if you go to Woolies or Coles, you realize the bananas are curved in a very like specific way. Like the, the start is curved and then the rest is like straight. If it's too bendy, you probably won't see that in the supermarkets because I think they actually dis discard that. It's, they want to make it more attractive to consumers to buy. And that's not good. You're not supposed to encourage consumers to buy pretty looking fruits. You got to encourage people to not discriminate on food. Like, hello, we're not discriminating, you know, in the human side, so why food? Food is yeah. food, right? And recently we're like on Instagram, we're dedicating this month to ugly fruits. We're gonna post like the ugliest fruits and say they're still beautiful because you can make great juices, you can make great soup. But yeah, it's just crazy because um, there's so many, you know, top level rules, like stupid banana rules that kind of just contributes to the fact that there's so much food wasted. I think there should be some policy implemented. Do you think it's because in Australia we sort of have access to like such high quality produce that people are becoming like really selective? That's one of the factors as well. I think the mindset's starting to change in Australia. I can see it, that people are more accepting like the weird looking fruits and they're like, oh, that's cool. Like I'll buy it. It's okay. I'll take them home. But it's still a long process to change that perspective. Since you mentioned that eventually you bring me home, you want to sort of target food insecurity more so. What sort of steps do you think you will take as an organisation down the track? Like we're talking like five, ten years, who knows? Yeah. How long ever it takes? Like how do you think you'll get to that ultimate yeah. goal? I've already have a plan actually. Oh, <laughs> and I'm happy to disclose it to the public. I'm actually thinking of maybe potentially setting up a not-for-profit arm that is attached to Bring Me Home so that we can really tackle the food waste at the catering level. So Catering businesses, when they, you know, offer a lot of food for specific events, there's always leftovers and food policies say you can't resell those because it's leftover food. But I'm sure we could do something with the policy to make sure those leftovers get delivered to someone that needs free food. And that's another not-for-profit arm, you know, in the future, maybe hopefully four to five years time I can do that. But that's a whole other business side and, you know, it takes a lot more time to develop that. But catering businesses is, is on my eye.
given that we sort of have this audience of young people who are trying to like make a difference, trying to find out where they fit into the world and mm. what they can do, do you have sort of any tips or advice you want to give to like our listeners, something that really resonated with you that you think you need to yeah. pass on? I think number one is to do your research. Really take time understanding what you're passionate about. I think a lot of uh, young people struggle to find what they're passionate about. And even if they have the passion, they struggle to find ways to really fuel that. A lot of passion actually dies down in, in like early 20s or mid 20s. That's actually based on a research paper. and. I think, you know, doing research, understanding the, the passion and finding a problem that they want to solve and make an impact on is so important. Finding the problem is a huge step because you got to, number one, find it and understand, number two, and number three, dive deep and see what else is happening, other side of the world, what are the other solutions happening. That's kind of like my approach with this whole thing, right? Mm. And secondly, I think, I think working for a similar company that you know shares the same mission vision and passion is very beneficial because even if it's volunteer work even even if it's non-paid you you learn so much from it and you enjoy it so much compared to working in i don't know for me if i work in an auditing firm at a like amazing brand i would think it's a waste of time because i just don't like auditing i don't see the passion in that Mm -hmm. so Really follow your passion in whatever you do, I think. There are also people that say passion can't feed you. You'll starve with passion. I don't believe that. I think there's always a way to capitalize on your passion and make money out of it. And one thing that I always you know, look at Bring Me Home is I don't look at the money now. I look at the impact we can generate and I know money's just gonna follow through. So if you, I think for students out there, if you've got you know, a burning sensation every time you wake up or when you're in the shower, you always have this idea, get started. Because if it's always in the back of your head, it means something, it's meant to be. You know, If it comes and goes, that's fine. Write down your ideas in, in, in a safe place and revisit once in a while and see which one you want to get started on. I think there's a very good, good place to start is to you know, do research, look at you know, career opportunities in those sectors, and also have conversations with your friends and family and see what they think. Because once you have an idea, Ideas is just all in your head, right? But if you have the idea, you talk to someone, it's planted in someone's heads. It's real. It's becoming real. It's not just in your head, mm-hmm. right? That's that's how I look at, you know, the approach to starting something. I guess one last question to finish off. Do you have sort of any like sort of books, media, films, like anything at all, yeah. like podcasts or anything that you listen to or that you engage with that you think would be very yeah. beneficial for our listeners to also check out yeah. too? Shark Tank, <laughs> as I mentioned earlier. Um, I highly recommend you you guys to look at the really good pitches that has actually closed million dollars of rounds and then look at the really shit pitches and kind of do a comparison and see what happened in between. Um, and then also, it would be very hard to find, but try to find the really bad products, but also still close rounds, because that is one thing that I use to motivate myself. <laughs> if the product is so bad and they can sell, then I'm sure anyone can do anything, right? Um, you just gotta do it, yeah. So Shark Tank is number one to motivate me and to switch off my mind, because I think that's necessary for mindfulness. I watch um, Bachelor in Paradise, Bachelorette, Bachelor, <laughs> like those three, because it's so stupid, I love it. <laughs> it's a, always a good good thing to watch and just you know close your mind off. And the third one that I really love is actually Black Mirror, because it taps into tech and it's so closely related to real life that it could happen anytime and it just spikes my curiosity. And I think that having that curiosity to begin with is very important. Awesome, cool, and we might wrap it up there. So thank you so much, Shane, for coming down on the show. 